Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Philosophy podcast. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the podcast along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Today's interview is with Ron Mallon, Professor of Philosophy at Washington University in St. Louis. His new book, The Construction of Human Kinds, is just out from Oxford University Press. Social constructionists hold, in general, that the world is determined at least in part by our ways of representing it. This Kantian-inspired intake on the relation between mind and world has been contested for decades within philosophy of science, where in its most radical forms, it holds that reality itself is dependent on human minds, and that the idea of an objective reality is a myth. More recently, debates regarding social construction have focused on categories that play important roles in the human social world, such as racial or gender or mental illness categories, where those on the social constructionist side argue that these categories are not biological or natural, and that alleviating social injustices that are aligned with these categories begins with recognizing that they are not inevitable, as the label natural or biological seems to imply. At the same time, controversies surrounding the case of Rachel Dolezal, a woman born of white parents who considers herself black, makes clear that the idea of race being just a matter of choice is not readily accepted, even by those who think race is not a biological category. How then should we understand what social construction entails? More broadly, how does social construction even work? In his new book, Mellon provides an accessible analysis of what social construction involves, how human categories are constructed, and how some of these categories become entrenched and contribute to structuring our social interactions, to causally guiding both how we behave towards others and how we respond to them. On his view, our cognitive heritage leads us to add an element of essentialism into some of the most important social concepts, such as those of race and gender. He also articulates the salient methods by which our representations of categories and the categories themselves form a constructivist loop, providing important detail on how it is that a category emerges alongside the practice of conceiving of it as a category, and also on how categories stabilize. His moderate perspective on social constructionism will be helpful to those participating in debates about social construction, as well as those outside it. There's a great deal in the book to talk about, so I look forward to hearing from Ron Mallon himself. Ron Mallon, are you there? Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm really looking forward to talking about your book. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, You give a proposal about how representations and of humans and human social categories are created um, and how they loop together um, a natural tendency that we have to essentialist thinking gets involved in your account. Um, you give an account of uh, the entrenchment of social roles, why certain categories become uh, very important, in particularly causally in terms of uh, the behavior that they uh, that they constrain, and you also, um, besides all these really wonderful details, you go into various broader themes um, associated with just sort of general philosophy of science, anti-realism, and realism, and the relationship between 
social constructionism and the reality of humankind's and then also concerns about social justice, which is a big motivator for um, for a lot of the people writing in this particular uh, area of philosophy. Um, can you, before we start with the book itself, can you give a little sense of um, who you are as a, as a philosopher, and then how you came to this topic and to writing the book? Sure. Well. I work in naturalized philosophy of mind, and um, I think of uh, things in terms of their connection to the sciences, and especially, in my case, the psychological sciences and cognitive science. And uh, I came to think about these subjects uh, when I was at graduate school at Rutgers in the 1990s, which was then really a center for philosophy of cognitive science and naturalized study of mind. But I started thinking about social construction in graduate school uh, and humankinds in particular because of a few strands of kind of thinking that were rippling through uh, at that time. One was uh, that I had a longtime interest in social and political philosophy and then in the mid-90s, uh, new work was appearing by philosophers like Naomi Zak and Anthony Appiah, Linda Alkoff and Charles Mills. They were all producing groundbreaking work in social philosophy that was about human categories like race and gender and so on. And that really captured my imagination and made me think that these were topics that analytic philosophers could be talking more about. And also relevant in this connection was Ian Hacking's work, which was also coming out in the 90s on the looping effect of humankinds, where he explored how labeling persons can kind of make up social reality in certain ways. And this seemed natural to think of his work as a kind of social construction. And some philosophers like Hacking, but also like Paul Griffiths and Sally Haslanger and Anthony Appiah were drawing connections between that work and social construction. But then there was this very different influence from cognitive science because at the same time there was this new movement of evolutionary psychology and evolutionary psychologists tended to call the humanistic social scientists that they saw as opposed to them. They called them social constructionists sometimes. And another entry then for me in thinking about social construction was just thinking about what the label of social construction might amount to in the study of cognition uh, that we get from cognitive science. And then one other strand also uh, coming to a head around the same time was that there was really interesting work in social ontology by folks like Margaret Gilbert and John Searle and Ryomo Tuomala on the nature of social reality. And again, it seemed like these were theories of how social reality was being made up by the ways we think and, uh, and act. So anyway, I started thinking about social construction a couple of decades ago and its connection to the sciences of the mind, and I started writing about it over the years. I always wanted to write a book about it, uh, but it really took me a long time to see how the various pieces uh, fit together in a way that felt satisfying for me, and that's what I tried to do in the book. Well, I think I think you you succeeded to a, to a very large degree. I mean, there's not there isn't a whole lot of of the social and political here, at least not as much as one might think of in a book about social construction, given the motivation of most people in it, but. You do get to it, and I, I do want to get to that um, 
uh, in due time. Um, so let me let me just let's just start with the basic question of you know, what's the, what's the basic debate here? Um, you know, there are social constructionists and then, you know, on the other side, you might say something like a uh, biological naturalist or something like that. Um, what's the, what's the debate here? I mean, it's about human categories, human, um, uh, you, you know, social categories of some sort. Um, where do these people stand? What do they hold and, and where are they most sort of in dispute? So in contemporary academia, the term social construction is not really a name for a single position. It's sort of a label for a bunch of different ideas that are loosely related to one another and inspire various sorts of work. So one thing that you have to do in thinking about it is interpret what it means. And uh, my version of social construction begins with trying to understand the existence and reality of kinds of person, things like races or genders or illness categories or emotion categories. And it understands uh, a construction, social construction, as a kind of explanation of the existence or of the character of these categories that appeals to the representations that we impose upon them uh, and on ourselves insofar as we take ourselves to belong to these categories. And so it contrasts, as you suggest, uh, with explanations that might uh, explain the existence or character of categories in terms of, say, endogenous biological explanations. Uh, But it also, and, and this is important in some spaces, it can contrast with people who want to eliminate or say uh, that certain categories don't exist. Things, uh, so in the case of race, for example, con- social constructionism about race is opposed not only to the view that race is a real and important biological kind, but also to the view that race doesn't exist at all and we should stop talking about it. So the constructionist might want to say uh, race is a real kind, but it's a product of our culture, practices, decisions, and um, in that way, uh, it's different than both the biological realist and the anti-realist. Okay. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the title of the book is The Construction of Human Kinds. It's not the social construction. And I, and I take it that uh, the reason you leave out the social from the title is because you have this element of, of essentialist thinking, uh, and this I this comes from your background or interest in evolutionary psychology, um, in which, uh, in some sense, so if you take a uh, a category like race in particular, uh, which is a, which is a pretty clear example, um, there's some sort of essentialism that gets attached to the representations of race and this, uh, well, we'll get into the looping relationship between the representations and the categories, but could you, could you say a bit about um, how your uh, proposal for, so, for the social construction involves this other element that seems to be not entirely socially constructed? Sure. So most social constructionists about Uh, human categories hold a couple of theses. One is that our representations of the categories, like theories, our models, our ideas and beliefs about the categories, are socially constructed and they're the product of 
various kinds of social practices and human decision. And then they also hold, uh, if they have this more substantive kind of construction, uh, that the, the categories, that is, the things that those representations are about, uh, are also socially constructed. So not only is the idea of race socially constructed, but race itself is socially constructed. And so I start first with the idea that the representation of race is socially constructed. And I think it's certainly true that the representation of race is socially constructed in the sense that lots of social and cultural forces have shaped the way we think about and represent race. But I qualify that by noting a literature in cognitive psychology and in evolutionary psychology that suggests that human beings are sometimes predisposed to thinking about human groups in a certain kind of essentialist way. Uh, and by that, I mean that they think of the groups uh, uh, that we think of as racial groups as characterized by unseen properties that explain their characteristic properties, that explain why someone's a member of the race and someone else is not a member of a race. And also, uh, it, those properties get passed on from parents to their children. So there's a kind of folk essentialism that people seem to uh, assume in thinking about human groups. And because that seems to be uh, not a, a socially constructed uh, tendency, but some rather a feature of our our human psychology, I qualify constructionism about representation, social constructionism about representation, and it's uh, more just a kind of constructionism where social forces and psychological forces both determine the shape of our representations of human groups. Okay. Um, so let me, there was, there's the famous case fairly recently of uh, Rachel Dolezal. I mean, I'm sure you don't really talk about it directly, but um, obviously it's, it's, it's been a case where this woman who identifies as black uh, has two white parents uh, and there was a big uproar when, uh, you know, she was very active in, um, uh, you know, various civil rights things and, and um, you know, black causes and things like that. And it turned out that, uh, you know, she had this actual, her parentage was not, at least uh, at least for as far as her parents go, they were, they were both white. Um, and yet she insisted that she was black. She identified as black. Uh, her whole life has been characterized by this identification and even today she sort of she says yeah i'm 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 black um can you can you use your model to sort of illuminate why there was such a big controversy about her claim to be black yeah so rachel dolezal seems to me like a a hard case um rather than an easy one uh for one thing, there's all kinds of speculations that are hard to settle about her state of mind and her motives and her sincerity. But when we put those aside, and even if we take her self-reports about the way she identifies at face value, uh, she's sort of a case where she has some features like uh, self-identification that suggests she's a member of a racial group. And there are other features 
for example, who her parents are or the race that she identified as when she was in college that suggests that she's a member of another racial group. And so when we think about the case, it's, it, she's, a, I think, a very hard case. But one kind of thing we can think about is that there are criteria built into our full conceptions of race about who counts as a member of a race and who doesn't. And those criteria are in part essentialist criteria. And um, by those criteria, she doesn't count as the member of the race that she identifies at. As. Okay. Um, so the essentialist element in your, or should say, the the role of essentialist thinking in our conception of of race or you know gender or something like that. Um, on on your view, that is a actually a misapplication of our cognitive capacities. Um, can can you explain that that idea? I think that in the case of folk biology and in the case of folk racialism, people impute essences to the kinds that they think about and talk about. Uh, as I described it before, they think of these kinds as being characterized by underlying properties that are passed on and that explain their superficial properties. Uh, but that this is, um, from the point of view of contemporary science, false. There aren't any such essences uh, there either in the case of race or in the case of folk biological kinds. So that's the sense in which folk uh, racialism, in so far as it's essentialist, is making a mistake. Now, from the point of view of, of ordinary racial uh, categorization, you might uh, nonetheless say, well, fine, we nonetheless have this, this practice of counting people as belonging and not belonging, and it, uh, it makes this false assumption, um, uh, but we can uh, maybe acknowledge that, that that assumption is false, and it, it's possible to either retain or abandon that practice of classification as we wish. Okay. Um, so just to, to finish up the, the Dolls All question, I mean, her, her claim to be black and, you know, setting aside all those other issues uh is is basically a claim that race isn't you know she she in in effect she's it, she seems to be illustrating the idea not just that you know many people ob- objecting to that are engaging in this essentialist thinking but she seems to be a nice example of your view in the sense that uh, if the essentialist thinking is incorrect, then she has as much a claim to being black, you know, given the certain circumstances of her social milieu, uh, as as somebody who, you know, we might say, you know, has dark skin and, and has all the other features that we associate with a particular race, like, such as black. Would you agree with that? I would not. I would not agree with that. Like I said, I think that she's a hard case. She mixes. There are these various features uh, that um, she has some and not others, uh, and she doesn't have features that 
are ordinary ordinarily that is according to the full conception taken to be constitutive but even if we think that there are no racial essences it's perfectly possible to if you wanted to retain um, racial thinking you'd want to think about well what really is at the core of racial thinking what what explains the kinds of racial differences that we see uh, in the contemporary United States. And if the answer to that was, well, it's just what someone identifies as, well, then she might have a claim. Uh-huh. Uh, but if it's instead a kind of social role that they occupy, or maybe in addition to the social role they occupy, the set of causal consequences of occupying the social role over time, for example, growing up as a member of a race or being unable to just simply change race by saying that you're a member of a different race. If that's how we think about the social role, then she doesn't count as black, even if she says she does. So it's perfectly possible to be a social constructionist, I think, and make sense of the thought that there can be identities that aren't simply a matter of choice or voluntary. All that having been said, I mean, I think her case is especially hard, and I don't know what to say about it, and I certainly wouldn't um, tell anyone else what to say about it. Right. Um, but uh, that's that's the way that you might think that it's more complicated. Once we abandoned, uh, once we abandon the idea of racial essentialism, it doesn't thereby entail that people can be whatever race they say they are or or live as. Um, you could still have a more substantive conception of what it took to be a member of a constructed kind than that. Okay, good. That was that was very helpful. Um, well, let's, you know, constructed kinds. Let's, uh, you mentioned Ian Hacking before, and he has this idea of this loop in which you have categories emerging alongside the practice of, of conceiving them, of them. So there's this interaction between the representations or concepts or models, whatever we you know, however we're representing a particular category, and then the category itself. Can you say something about how, and this is essential, sorry to say that word, but this is a, an important aspect of the whole idea of social construction is the, is the construction by social means of some way. Can you explain that uh, looping of the concepts and the categories and how these things are intertwined? Sure. Well, so when things are going well for us, theoretically, we have these ideas and beliefs and concepts that are about parts of the world. And what we want is that they describe correctly the parts of the world that they're about and that they do so in virtue of having been caused by the parts of the world in the right way. For example, we might observe that something is true uh, and then describe it in our theory as true. And so there's this sort of epistemic constraint of our theories, our labels, our representations of the world by the world itself. And what the constructionist thinks is that the world is in turn partially determined by uh, our ways of representing it. And so um, the trick then is to give some more substance to the idea that the ways we represent the world might causally influence the world. And once we've done that, then we'll see that there's a loop, both from the world epistemically constraining our theories and then our theories going back to the world 
and causally determining the parts of the world that they're about. But we need some uh, account of the various mechanisms uh, or causal forces by which representing the world as being a certain way makes it that way. It isn't in general the case that we can just represent the world as being a certain way and cause it to be that way. So uh, part of what I try to do in the book is to develop various causal pathways by which uh, our, our representing the world as being certain ways might influence, uh, influence the people so represented in the case of human categories. Well, I, th- I think that's one of the sort of main contributions of the book to this particular literature is, um, is how this comes about, right? So could you, could you tell us about, about that? Well, so I try to distinguish a number of different mechanisms by which uh, representing a category might bring it about that the category uh, comes to have the properties represented. So one kind of thing is that when we represent a category as being a certain way, it can lead us, whether we're members of the category or we're third parties to the category, it can lead us to take actions that uh, may influence the category members. So, for example, if you represent a, a group as being not very good at a certain kind of activity, maybe males aren't very good at caregiving professions, or maybe you represent women as not being very good at science or something like that, then it can lead, if you really believed that that was true and you were trying to hire a caregiver or trying to hire a scientist or trying to promote these groups, then you might uh, behave in a way that restricted access of men to caregiving professions or restricted access uh, by women to positions in science and thereby creating a kind of loop because then when you look at the world, you'll see uh, men as overrepresented and women as underrepresented uh, in science or men as underrepresented and women as overrepresented in caregiving professions. And this will seem to provide epistemic support for the very conception that you had that led you to this behavior. So one kind of way these kinds of loops can get created is simply via the rational constraint that comes with representing the world in a certain way. Uh, But there are also other kinds of mechanisms. One of them that I focus on is uh, the kind of automatic processes that have gotten a lot of attention in social psychology in the last couple of decades, things like implicit bias, whereby our behaviors towards other people uh, might be influenced by the implicit, uh, unconscious sometimes associations we have uh, between those people and, and certain evaluations or certain kinds of content or activity. And uh, another kind of automatic uh, process, you know, that might play a role is sometimes called stereotype threat. That's where people uh, who are classified in a certain way become self-conscious of confirming a deleterious classification, and that self-consciousness can cause them to perform worse at behaviors uh, that they're that the classification describes them at worse at, so it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. And then a, 
A third kind of pathway that I talk about in the book is what I call environmental construction. And here I just mean to draw attention to the fact that when we classify groups of people in certain ways, we don't just interact with them, but we often interact with the environment by, say, um, changing the neighborhoods that we live in or not changing the neighborhoods that we live in or locating public resources uh, or insisting on the presence of excellent schools or of other kinds of uh, other kinds of pu- uh, uh, publicly provided resources. These are ways in which our environment gets constructed by the ways we represent human categories and uh, and then because the environment gets constructed in that way, that environment has systematic causal effects on persons and the persons have systematic causal effects back on their environment that come to be reflected in our representations as well. Mm-hmm. So the the processes here are, supposed, are really, I think, complex and there are many of them and we should expect they to interact. And I don't think that what I've done is provide a, anything like a complete account of the various processes that might be in play, but rather I was trying to provide a kind of how possibly account of how uh, these processes um, might serve the role that constructionists think about them, which is they might play the role of making the world more like the way we represent it as being. Okay, and that's, um, I mean, I take it that's, Kind of the core of a, of any social constructionist, right? That, yeah, I think the way I think about it, that's what's really interesting about social constructionist explanations is the is this idea that uh, the world might be the way it is because the way we, we, because we represent it as being that way that it's somehow under the control of our conceptual practices. Okay. Um... Yeah, so that's helpful. Um, so, what what sorts of um, categories uh, would not be socially constructed? Um, is I mean, obviously, the most radical social constructionists think everything is right, and you sort of mentioned that kind of before. Um, but obviously, we're well. You you do go into which particular kinds get entrenched, and and I want to get to that as well, but. Uh, but before we get to which kinds get entrenched um, or which social roles become entrenched, that's a, that's a really important topic. Uh, which, what sorts of uh, human categories or other categories about the world isn't social construction uh, a very good account of? So I think there are human categories that are explained by things like biological or medical reality. And so you can think of all kinds of different disease categories where we know that there's a disease or a bacteria or some sort of organic dysfunction that are responsible for the category um, being instantiated in a particular person. So... We can still talk about social construction when we ask questions like, is the fact that we regard this as a disease a social construction or something like that? But if what we're asking is, why does the person have these properties, uh, these symptoms, and so on, I think there's lots of categories. Um, Type 1 diabetes is one I think I mentioned in the book as an example. 
uh, where there's some kind of underlying biological uh, explanation for the surface features that we associate with the category. Even in these cases, however, there will be what I call a social role. And that is that when we have a, a disease category where we have these symptoms of the category that are explained by underlying biological dysfunction, but then we have a social or a medical context that classifies that disease category and places people in it and starts differentially treating them, then um, those, those disease categories will also be occupants of social roles. And we wouldn't, I think, want to really call, talk about those categories as social constructions, except in the, because, and the reason we wouldn't is because what we mean by the category or what we mean to pick out, the important things we're trying to explain in making reference to the category are explained by some kind of biological or medical uh, dysfunction. Uh, but when we're talking about but even those cases, they occupy some kind of social role. So it's even possible in those cases that some specific symptom, we might say, is this symptom explained by the underlying biological disease or dysfunction or bacterial infection or whatever? Or is this symptom explained by the fact that the person occupies the social role of a patient and um, or of a patient who's been classified as having this particular disease? And so even in those cases, there's some room for some social constructionist explanation to play a role. But I still wouldn't want to call the categories themselves uh, social constructions in those cases because the primary explanation of the existence or the properties of the category is not the, uh, our social practices or our beliefs or our, our conceptually guided ways of treating those people, but rather something that we'd rather think of as, as natural or biological. Okay, so so yeah, I mean, one of the one of the questions I had was this distinction between social categories and social roles and. Uh, could you could you say a little bit more about that? I mean, you, you just sort of relied on that in in the way you were answering the previous question. But could you be a little bit more um, explicit about that distinction? Sure. So this is just a terminological point for me. Uh, a category is a thing in the world, like a, a a kind. It's the thing our representations are about. Sometimes people talk about categories rather as meaning representations, but I use them as the things in the world that our representations are about. So um, when I talk about social categories, I mean to pick out um, parts of the world or kinds of things in the world. Social roles is um, a, a term of art for me. me. A social role gets created whenever the representation of a certain category becomes common knowledge in a community uh, so that everyone kind of understands what the basic features of the category is and everyone kind of understand. Uh, sorry, what the features are. And everyone kind of understands that everyone else knows that kind of thing too. So then there's a kind of a social role uh, that uh, in a community that describes a category. And then from, the, from categories... Um, I distinguish a more developed kind of category, a more important kind of category that I call, uh, you know, a relevant kind or an entrenched 
social role. And that's a category whereby when we got this shared understanding, this shared representation of a kind of person shared in a community, it starts having um, systematic causal influence uh, in such a way that we really need to make reference to it when we're thinking about our social world. So we want to understand why things are the way they are. We need to make reference to these social roles in order to do so. When, when we reach that point, that's when I think of it as a kind of entrenched social role. Okay, so that was sort of my next question was um, what entrenchment involves and, and how a role becomes entrenched. And, and if you could give an example of that as well. Yeah. So let me give an example of a less entrenched social role. So there's, uh, there's a kind of um, – there are social roles that have um, very that, – that are very um, loosely defined, like who's it in tag or something like that. There's a fact in a game of tag about who's it and who's not it. And that fact shifts around a lot and it can be disputed. But it's also the case that if everyone in a game of tag just stops regarding anyone as it, then there won't be anyone who's it. So that the social role of being it in a game of tag is profoundly just dependent upon the current conceptually guided behaviors of the people who are members of the community. Mm -hmm. In contrast, if you think about categories like race or sex in the contemporary United States or, or illness categories, these are categories where we have representations of what different races or sexes are like. The representations uh, come to be widely shared in a community, but they also systematically shape all kinds of other behaviors. They shape and they have all kinds of causal effects. So they shape the way we rear people over the course of their lives. They shape their interactions with other institutions like educational institutions or criminal justice institutions or public health institutions. Uh, they shape the communities and social networks that we form. And so these kinds of categories, uh, it seems like e even if we sort of just stopped classifying people according to these categories, we, it would be like the people in the game of tag deciding no one counts as it anymore. There'd be lots of causal power around people classified as these members of these categories. There'd be lots of this detritus left over or this causal residue. And that's a, um, a sign, that's evidence of just you know, how entrenched the categories have become. So I, as I think about it, an entrenched social role is a, a, a social role that um, has become really causally significant. And one of the ways that a social role can be really causally significant is by having lots of uh, causal effects that remain uh, or that, uh, that linger as residue uh, in people or in their environment. Okay, so for example, a, a gender category where people are treated differently or left out of jobs or promoted or things like that. Those are all sorts of causal. All kinds uh, of, yeah, causal effects. And then they, they linger. You know, if we got rid of gender categories overnight, we would still have groups of people who had been treated this way systematically. And we would have 
physical structures that are gendered in various ways. Um, the most obvious cases is things like bathrooms. Um, but uh, th there's just all kinds of features of our social world that seem um, shaped by the way we think about gender, the clothing that we uh, have available to us and wear, and so on. And uh, if we if we just got rid of uh, our conceptual practices, there seems like it's reasonable to think about there's all this other um, causal residue left over, uh, both in people's experiences, in, the, in people's bodies, as it were, and in people's environments. Okay. Um, so l these are two connected questions in a way. Is One is how can we tell if a category is socially constructed or... or you mentioned some of the illness categories. There are some where, unless you're, you know, really rabid social constructionist, you can just say, yeah, that's a that's a biological illness. Uh, the type two diabetes, the diabetic, you know, that's just uh, that has nothing to do with social construction. Um, so there's some clear cases there, but a lot of the debate about social construction. Um, is people, some people thinking that, you know, gender, these really are uh, categories that people belong to and that it's, it's ridiculous, for example, to define a woman in the way, say, uh, Sally Haslager does in terms of a social role, roughly speaking, rather than these are things that, you know, being a woman is having these sexual characteristics and along with those come various behaviors that we should expect. Um, and the, 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 the debate there, of course, is are, is the way women are and act and causally interact with other people is this something that's just because they're in a role that's entrenched or is it really something biological? Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's where sort of the, the debate in, in society you might say about some of these categories is, you know, sort of turns on the, whether it's constructed or not. And it's not clear how to, how we might make a decision between whether it is or isn't. And I think behind that question is, uh, the issue that you, you talk about at, at various points in the book of uh, the inevitability of certain categories um, or not, the idea being that if somehow, if a category is socially constructed, uh, then allows for some sort of change, particularly people interested in social justice are very... Uh, interested in interpreting things as being socially constructed for this reason. And then in contrast, of course, is this idea, no, it's biological, and that's just the way it is. And you give an example, I think, of a, of a uh, philanderer, a man who cheats on his wife, and that's just men, you know. Boys will be boys, or it is probably as good an example of any. So there's two questions there. One is how do we tell whether they're socially constructed or not? Is there some sort of even vague heuristic? Um, but also, what should we make of this idea that somehow if it's biological, it's fixed, there's nothing we can do about it, 
versus no, it's socially constructed. Uh, therefore, it's like completely something that's up to us to change. Good. So how can we tell it's a social construction? Uh, and the answer to that is in one sense that it's very hard. So one thing I tried to do in the book is not, uh, I say explicitly, I'm not arguing that any particular category is socially constructed, although I return to some plausible candidates for social construction like race and gender that a lot of people have talked about, but I don't actually defend that they're socially constructed, and that's partly in recognition of how difficult it would be to prove that uh, and how much science comes to bear on it and how much that would take me away from the topics I did want to talk about. But as a kind of heuristic, you know, evidence that something might be socially constructed it can be seen if we see that it varies culturally. So if it varies from time to time and place to place, uh, the way that, say, women act uh, or that men act, uh, then we might say that uh, that makes gender a candidate uh, social construction. Now, maybe it's not 100% socially constructed. Maybe it's partly socially constructed and partly biologically determined. Maybe there's something really complex to say about the interaction between those two things. But as a heuristic, when we see cultural variation, that's evidence of social construction. The hard part is that sometimes we wonder, in the course of thinking about social change, we wonder whether some arrangement of affairs is possible that we don't know whether it's possible yet. We might, for example, be interested in, uh, as feminists, we might be interested in a kind of equality of men and women that's never before been achieved in human life. And we might uh, secretly in our, in our pessimistic moments wonder, is that possible? Is that something that we can achieve uh, where we don't have evidence already from cultural variation about what is and isn't possible, and we have to just conjecture uh, about what's possible. Going to the second question, which is the sense of um, exculpation that sometimes accompanies representations of certain kinds of category-typical behaviors as natural, like a philandering male might be exculpated uh, by people who say, you know, that's just the way men are, um, then I think uh, that's, a, that's an interesting case. And how do we escape that? There's actually a, a really hard question because we all, in various ways, all do make use of such exculpations in our ordinary lives, we take it that when someone, for example, is very sick, it would be uh, inappropriate to require them to keep their promise to meet us for, for lunch or to show up at work. Uh, so we take that to be excusing conditions that natural categories can provide. And so the question then is, is under what circumstances do um, Putatively natural categories actually provide excusing conditions, and um, those things, I think, are uh, very difficult. I suspect there's no general story. It's also the case that we don't always excuse people um, for their natural behaviors. If uh, being a pedophile turns out to be something that 
someone has no control over it, there might be some kind of exculpation, but we wouldn't thereby hold them blameless for uh, uh, crimes against children. We would we would still hold them blameworthy. Right. That's a good example. Um, let me. You you mentioned equality. You know, if 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 it's even possible, say for. Uh, gender differences to somehow be made to disappear versus the idea, no, it's somehow biologically built into us and that's just the way it is. Uh, this, this kind of raised for me, I, I was thinking as I read the book, I was thinking about the idea of social hierarchies, which, which you don't talk about, but I do find it really interesting because they aren't talked about as explicitly as I would like, uh, I don't mean you in particular, but in, in general, uh, whenever I encounter some reading or some person and we're, the goal is social justice or equality and, and so forth, um, I always wonder, well, if, if we got rid of the categories that we have now and the hierarchies that we establish as well, because the mere fact of a category difference doesn't mean that one is going to stand over, you know, as a subordinate or superordinate to the other, right? That's, that's, an, that's an addition to the categories. And, and I guess my question is, are though, is, is hierarchical thinking as essential to the way we structure our societies as, you know, thinking in terms of essences of categories that fall within a hierarchy? Uh, or, or is that something that is somehow not inevitable? Uh, so I, I suppose the question is, yeah, we might get rid of a particular hierarchy in which, say, white people are treated superordinate and black people are subordinate or men are superordinate, women are subordinate. We might eliminate that particular hierarchy, but does it, fo- it doesn't seem to follow to me that that would not just be replaced with a different set of categories filling the same hierarchical relationships. Right. So I think the interesting, there's a really interesting question you're raising. Um, Charles Mills, I think, talks about the distinction between a horizontal and a a vertical uh, social system. You can think of a racial system. So in a horizontal racial system, you might have different races, but they're not ordered with respect to one another. So there'd be no white supremacy in such a system, uh, whereas in a vertical system, they'd be ordered with respect to one another. So I think one thing you're saying in your question is that when we're thinking about social justice, there's more than just categories of person in play, but there's this relationship that exists among them, how they're ordered with respect to one another. Right. Uh, so... I think that social categories become more important alongside social hierarchies. So uh, my own thought about it is that 
there are these um, in, in human natural history. You know, there are these hunter gatherer groups, and they're largely egalitarian. And you see that when they try to find, um, when a, a powerful leader tries to to dominate everyone else and become kind of a a, a, a big man leader, that the people cooperate with one another and overthrow that person. This is, I'm thinking of uh, the anthropologist Christopher Boehm's work uh, here. Mm-hmm. And so but at some point we start getting these human groups that are, are um, larger and larger human groups. And in larger and larger human groups, we start getting uh, social hierarchies and we also start getting uh, things like specialization of behavior. And um, so I suspect somehow that uh, social categories, the categorizations of persons, um, one kind of categorization of persons is to into different um, social positions in larger groups, uh, for example, into professional categories um, that would enable you to have this enormous group that works successfully and efficiently. There's lots of coordination and cooperation in it. And uh, I've wondered, but I, I don't know the answer, but I've wondered a lot about the connection between um, hierarchy and um, these larger groups. So it seems like the, when we get larger groups, that hierarchy just comes along for the ride. And I suspect that's because hierarchy is itself a kind of specialized division of labor. It, to have someone who gives the orders and someone who takes the orders turns out to be a more efficient way of a group coordinating its actions than having uh, everyone be equal in terms of orders or something like that. But um, anyway, I guess all this is by way of saying that I I think the connection between category and hierarchies is really interesting and difficult. And I think that you're right that uh, social justice is going to depend on more than just refining and correcting our categories um, but whether it involves the complete overthrow of hierarchy, I, d- I don't know. Okay, um, fair enough. Uh, so let me just turn to, at the, at the very end of the book, you turn to some broader themes, and one in particular, which I don't know if we'll get into all the messy details because it involves uh, incommensurability and, and various theories of philosophy of language and conceptual change across time and across scientific or other theories. Um, could you at least give us a flavor of the this broader context of social constructionism and then anti-realism, you know, which I, I tend to think about it from a philosophy of science perspective, uh, and I th- that's probably where much of the thinking about anti-realism versus realism takes place. But um, could you say something about the relationship between the social, social constructionism and the whole debate about realism and anti-realism? Yeah, so... I start just with the maybe just the intuition or the starting place that it seems to me like social roles or social facts, even conspicuous ones like being a professor or being a police officer or something, these things are real things in the world. And that when we're thinking about 
you know, real, the real, these things ought to be on the list of the real things. Uh, so now a lot of people think about social constructionist, social constructionism as an anti-realist position. And so uh, what I try to do is sort of set out a kind of realism I call basic realism and just show how uh, various kinds of social facts can satisfy basic realism. So the idea of basic realism is just that um, there can be these objectively true or real things in the world and that our um, successful scientific theories can make reference to those things and it's in virtue of making reference to those things and representing them successfully that our theories can be true. So, for example, if we had a study that there were different political attitudes among different races in the United States, for example, that generalization, I take it, can be true. When, when those kinds of generalizations are true, they can be true in virtue of the, uh, partly the picking out with the racial terms in the generalizations, picking out groups of people in the United States where those groups of people are themselves socially constructed groups. Okay. Um... So we're we're starting to run out of time here. Um, so I think I have time for one more question besides my final "What are you doing next?" question. Uh, so one of the things that uh, at the very end of the book you you turn to issues in social justice, which which are very very strongly intertwined with with many discussions of social construction, um, including yours. Um, and you end with a kind of a, I wouldn't say pessimistic, but less than optimistic note, um, where you kind of raise, uh, even if even if we become more aware of the relationships between our representations of categories and then the categories themselves, and then the entrenchment of the roles and so forth, um, all this awareness is not on your view, going to lead to the sort of social change that people who are interested in social justice are working for. Um, you, you raise a kind of a free rider problem for this. So can you, what, what might you hope to be able to contribute to those concerns? And I, I say that knowing that your primary focus was really to kind of clarify a lot of these background issues about construction of kinds um, rather than directly a worry with social justice. But what sort of implications do you think might fall out of, of uh, your view? Good. So I, one thing I was thinking about as I was concluding the book is this connection with social justice. And of course, a lot of the interests in, that led me to start writing the book, as I mentioned before, were authors that were much more explicitly concerned with social justice questions than the ones that I take up in the book. But I wanted to avoid the trap of, of overemphasizing or exaggerating uh, what we can accomplish with constructionist theorizing by itself. So it seems to me that constructionist theorizing can make salient that certain kinds of social arrangements 
are contingent and that if we were to behave otherwise, that they could be different or they could be transformed. On the other hand, there are other barriers to changing those things. And uh, as I mentioned, that, and, and as you just mentioned, one of those is just free rider problems or problems of getting large groups of people to coordinate and cooperate. And here I take it there's a kind of uh, vicious cycle. One thing that stabilizes a social order is belief in the naturalness of the social order. Like Plato recognized this when he suggested that myth of the metals should be promulgated to stabilize the republic. Mm. So, so when people have trouble coordinating to make social change, then that stabilizes the social order. And then because of uh, the going stories about these social orders surrounding categories that describe them as natural, then it can seem like the inability of people to make social change is confirmation of the naturalness of the category, confirmation that the category can't be changed, and that this in turn seems to undercut uh, the drive for social change because people won't want to engage in collective social action if they think that it's unlikely to succeed because of some uh, possibly natural facts. So the one thing that constructionist work can do and is to contribute to sort of breaking out of this cycle but uh i wouldn't say that it can achieve it um achieve social change on its own and the one thing i tried to do in the book was in various ways elaborate or um come to a better understanding of how the social construction of categories might be possible okay so the noble lie isn't very noble after all it does um, seem nowadays like it's hard to have a lot of sympathy for Plato's <laughs> that will lie. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, um, I do want to ask before we before we go, what uh, what's on the horizon for you? I mean, finishing a book is a big task. Um, what are you working on now? What's next? I've been thinking a lot about what I talked about earlier in the interview under the label of environmental construction, about the ways in which our categorizations of ourselves and others lead us to transform the environment. And uh, so I've been thinking a lot about what uh, environmental construction might mean for a bunch of different debates that philosophers and psychologists have had. Well, um, I wish you luck with with wherever you go with those with those thoughts and yes that is it for today so i want to thank you again for talking with us uh, on new books and philosophy about the construction of humankind i look forward to seeing what comes next thank you so much for having me carrie i've really enjoyed this you've been listening to my interview with ron mallon We've been talking about his new book, The Construction of Human Kinds, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.